Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Take it to Venezuela. Yeah, how did we get to the point that a socialist is the Democrat nominee for county executive in Allegheny County? And Sarah Inamorato doesn't hide the fact that she's one of those. She's a socialist. She ran and won as a Democratic socialist for a state representative. So uh, people in her district weren't scared off, scared off by the word. Again, how did we get here that they weren't scared off? Uh, socialist used to be a dirty word in America, still should be. And has any socialist candidate for any office anywhere ever come up with an example of where socialism has actually worked? Have any of them or, or the people who vote for them ever heard of Venezuela, which used to be a pretty nice country and where people uh, were reduced to eating zoo animals not too long ago? Inamorado has an ad out now saying that abortion is on the ballot in November, it's like, you know, a couple weeks from now. In Allegheny County, this is an issue for people in Allegheny County, really? When did who's running the county have anything to do with abortion? And the polls show that despite how much the candidates in the media like to talk about it, abortion is an issue that's way down the list on the issues that voters care about, even in federal elections, much less county and local. The county executive should be about property taxes and crime and if you elect a socialist, you can be almost certain that your taxes will go up, and so will the amount of crimes being committed. So it's a nice choice for you. Joe Rocky, who's Inamorado's opponent, says his views on abortion are irrelevant. And so Inamorado has an ad out saying that the fact that he says that it's irrelevant is a reason for not voting for him. When, of course, her saying that it is relevant is exactly why nobody should vote for her. And the fact that she admits to being a socialist makes everything else she says irrelevant and is why nobody should ever vote for her for anything. When we come back, speaking of socialism and other radical, stupid ideas, if you're wondering what happens to the college students who are showing up at protests uh, recently to celebrate stupid ideas, what they do when they get out of college, well, we'll tell you about a study that shows they end up teaching at colleges. It's a vicious circle, I guess. And in our second half hour, the media may have jumped the shark on their coverage of the non-bombing of a hospital in Gaza. Stick around. If you've been surprised by the number and the size of the pro-Palestine demonstrations on college campuses the last two weeks, uh, you probably shouldn't have been. Uh, there may be more stupidity per square inch at every major university than there is anywhere else on the planet. And it's probably not going to change anytime soon. J.P. Green is a senior research fellow in the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. He joins us now. Jay, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me on. So the uh, 31 student organizations at Harvard seem to have gotten the most attention for saying Israel was, quote-unquote, entirely responsible for the unfolding violence over there. Uh, this is supposed to be the future of America, so what's in these kids' future? 
Um, well, as you know, we may all hope that they're going on to the life of living in their mother's basement, but unfortunately, uh, we studied where campus radicals tend to go in their future careers, and we actually find the largest number go on to a career in education. 38% of former campus radicals tracked by the organization Canary Mission go on to education careers, 28% in higher education, 10% in K-12 schools. Is that the only place or one of the only places that's willing to listen to their BS? Is that why they, they, they gravitate there? <laughs> it, it, it may be an asset rather than a liability for those jobs. That's possible. It's possible that they don't screen uh, for, for these issues. Um, and it's also fairly attractive to former campus radicals. Um, uh, more than twice as many going to education as going to activism. Uh, working for a nonprofit organization, and that's because teaching actually pays better, uh, has better job security, uh, and provides a captive audience of students who are somehow required to listen to to your you know radical ideas. Yeah, it's uh, I, if thinking back to many years ago, a long time ago when I was in college, if you are a campus activist and you're young, obviously you're pretty young if you're on you know if you're in if you're a college student. Uh, you uh, acquire, a, I don't know if you call it a, um, a, 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 a kind of a feeling of being a celebrity, but you have, uh, you're, you're an important person on campus. It's kind of like the old uh, being a big man on campus because you're an athlete or something. Um, and do you think they get drunk with that? That, that, hey, look how important I am. I People pay attention to me. And so that environment just becomes appealing to them because I'm, I'm accepted is, here. Sure. I'm, I'm a wonderful person here. Right. Now, they can be high-status people uh, in this kind of artificial world of academia, um, but they can also recruit the next generation of campus radicals yeah. who in turn go on to their own future careers of, of uh, being professors and, and, and K-12 teachers. And that's how our institutions have gotten this extreme. That's why we're seeing the, the, the endorsement of Hamas atrocities by large groups of students um, because they've been increasingly radicalized by an increasingly radicalized faculty. Yeah, they're, so it's a vicious circle. The, the kids right. you see now demonstrating are being, have been indoctrinated by people who were not that long ago indoctrinated by another group. So how long does it go back? Well, it goes back a long ways, but we can certainly point to um, 60s radicals like Bill Ayers who yep. was in the Weather Underground or Angela Davis, uh, who was part of the Black Power Movement, uh, both involved in, in violent revolutionary activities. Um, and when they failed in their attempts to overtake the country with a violent revolution, what they do, they became professors, mm-hmm. um, and and then they recruit future students, and they're, they're now close to retirement age. So you know, there are at least two generations of radicals that have been recruited since then. I think uh, one of the more famous radicals, uh, Saul Alinsky, I saw a quote the other day. Uh, this isn't the exact quote, but he basically said, uh, "If you want a revolution, cut your hair and put on a suit, and uh, you you get jobs." You know, in you you infiltrate. I guess is what he was saying. You don't. They can see you coming if you have the long hair. This is you know talking about the '60s radicals, but you know it could be the same now with blue hair or purple hair or whatever you want to do with your hair these days. Um, uh, 
it's it's about infiltrating and. And we, and we do see some evidence of that, yes. Yeah. So 24% of the former campus radicals who we tracked went on to the corporate world, law firms, uh, businesses like Amazon, Disney, um, uh, J.P. Morgan. Uh, and, you know, uh, they are radicalizing those institutions, but it's a lot harder for them to take over there because profit motive does get in their way and does rein in their activities. And when things go wrong for those companies, they, they can fire those people, and they sometimes do. And we've seen this, for example, in the Bud Light retrenchment, um, mm-hmm. where if a company goes too far, they experience a negative consequence, and they'll rein it in. But it's not clear what's going to cause universities to raise it in, rein it in. Our best hope is that donors will close their wallets and state legislatures will withhold their appropriations until universities get their act uh, together. So who are some of these people, uh, not necessarily specifically, but and how did you guys uh, in, your, in, in the study that you uh, quoted, how did, they, how did they trace these people and, and how do they know their history and where they are now? Sure. So the, the organization is called Canary Mission. And they track campus radicals, and they've been doing it for over a decade. Uh, And so they had a set of over 1,300 former campus radicals. And we drew a sample of 300 of them. And then um, Canary Mission does put together links to their social media profiles as well as to their LinkedIn accounts. And we used those, but then we also updated a lot of those that were, were broken uh, or out of date so that we could find their current whereabouts. And we did that for a sample of 300 of those former campus radicals. And that's how we were able to find what occupations they're in now. Yeah. And so, again, teaching is attractive to them because they they um, they have a certain amount of freedom, I guess. And they also, as you said, they, they have the captive audience and they know how successful their teachers were in indoctrinating them, I guess. Yeah, and I don't know. Look, I mean, indoctrinate. We're saying the word indoctrinate, and that might be a bit strong. I don't think that students are um, easily forced to believe or made to believe things that they really don't. But I think what they, what we could think of them as, um, as recruiters of kind of uh, lost souls, right? So people who have kind of broken values are are adrift. Um, they get re- recruited into like a cult. And so these these radical movements are, are cult-like movements. And so I'm not, not sure how much they're, they're indoctrinating them, that is convincing them intellectually, as much as they're psychologically recruiting them into a welcoming group of people who all think alike, um, like a cult does. Um, and I think that's what it looks like more on, camp- on college campus. Um, and... And so, you know, they're preying upon some of the more vulnerable kids that go, go to college and are lost um, and, and then who find a group that affirms them. Uh, and, and then they do the same to the next uh, as a cult would. Um, and they're only able to get away with it, again, because universities are largely consequence-free environments where uh, the faculty could do a poor job of actual academic instruction, and somehow they don't lose their jobs. Uh, mm-hmm. So they could put a lot of energy into this activity instead. Well, why would any parent be surprised, or should any parent be surprised, I guess maybe is a better way of putting it, if their kid is a radical by the time he comes home for Thanksgiving? 
Yeah, well, you know, it does, and it does happen. Um, you know, I think that for parents who are concerned about this, you know, just work on on trying to strengthen your kid from from being the kind who might get recruited into this this cult. Um, and so think of it like vaccinating your kid against a disease by by basically trying to strengthen their identity for who they are as you know them in your house with your values. And the more strongly you you vaccinate them with with the with your own values, the less likely they are to be recruited into this other cult. Yeah, but uh, you know, aren't college students just traditionally, and not necessarily just college students, but kids that age, teenagers into the early twenties, aren't they just rebellious in nature? And aren't they just have always have always been known for rebelling against? whatever it is their parents told them. So sometimes you might be actually radicalizing them more by beating it, trying to pound it into their heads before they get there. Then, the, you know, the whole thing is they, they, get into, they get in a group and they decide our parents are all nuts. They're, they're, we're, not, we're not buying that stuff anymore. So they, it's groupthink. You're right. Look, it's, it's a delicate act. Raising children is challenging. Um, and everyone who's a parent knows this. And, Generally, we would like our institutions to help us uh, mm-hmm. raise our children to be virtuous adults, good citizens, um, and to see how our K-12 schools and our universities are actively undermining our efforts with our children is alarming. And so we need to recapture these institutions so that they serve parents' purposes, so they serve public purposes, rather than the particular radical purposes of the faculty. We're talking to J.P. Green. He's a senior research fellow in the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Jay, you uh, obviously, uh, in your position there at the Heritage Foundation, you spent a lot of time researching and, and uh, checking out what's going on with education. I'm just wondering, um, as you were, you were talking about, you know, what they, what parents should do to prepare their kids for what they're about to, you know, get when they what what they're about to hear and see when they get on a college campus. Uh, this has been going on. This isn't something new. I'm just wondering why or how conservative-leaning parents don't – why they continue to spend huge amounts of money to send their kids to these places. By now, they have to know what's going on there, don't they? I mean, are they surprised that, that – well, this yeah. is in the, it's not like this is just being talked about now. This has been around for a while. The radicalization. This, is, this has been long in coming, and you're right. Uh, too many of us are sending our kids to college. A lot of our kids would be better off in trade schools, um, getting a certificate in something that could get them a job more quickly that probably is higher paying, um, uh, and avoids uh, dangerous nonsense like you might find on campus. That is true. But you know, for those of us who think our kids really need the kind of preparation that college provides, you know, another thing we need to do is to go to our policymakers, go to our state legislators, go to our congressmen and say that we want our taxpayer dollars um, to be used for public purposes at these institutions. And they and while academic freedom is is desirable for for improving the quality of education, um, it doesn't have to include a tolerance for every idea, including um, uh, dangerous and illegal ideas, and it doesn't have to provide public subsidy for radicalization. So we, we, these are public institutions and public employees, and we can bring them back under control. So 
uh, and conservatives are supposed to be very market conscious and big fans of the free market. I, I'm wondering, as as you said, it's this is not something new. It's been around for a long time. Why haven't more Hillsdale colleges popped up? Why aren't there? Why haven't there been some conservative leading entrepreneurs who have um, provided alternatives to colleges? It's an excellent question. Yes, and 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 we do. That's another thing we need is um, for for wealthy conservatives to stop giving to these bad institutions and start founding new institutions. That would be helpful. Um, but part of why it's hard to start up new places is that. Um, Higher education operates as a cartel. So there are accreditors who demand that if you don't obey DEI dictates, Mm -hmm. uh, that that is diversity, equity, inclusion dictates, they'll they'll deny you accreditation. Or faculty themselves, for their careers, they have to get through various gatekeeping um, uh, uh, forces that will tilt them in a certain direction. So they won't be able to complete their PhDs. They won't be able to get their first job. They won't be able to get tenure if they speak like conservatives. So they have to hide it um, or decide to go into some other occupation. And all of those forces at those, those various gates of, of getting your PhD, getting your job, and getting tenure shift the entire field, regardless of institution, further to the left. And what? How many of these um, students who are being radicalized right now are education majors who end up teaching elementary school or high school? So we found that ten percent of the former campus radicals are in K twelve schools. Twenty eight percent are in higher ed. They they like higher ed more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that's that's even fewer hours and better pay. Right. Um, uh, but they do go into K twelve also. Um, and we can see we can see that um, uh, Bill Ayers himself was a little bit of both. He was a higher education professor of education, so he trained future teachers. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Uh, last question for uh, J.P. Green. There, there seems to be some shock and outrage now that some future employers have asked for uh, the list of students who have signed on to some of these pro-Hamas statements that we've seen out there. Yes, as I think they're entitled to do. Look, mm-hmm. um, that's just account- accountability for your public statements and actions. It would be inappropriate if we, you know, snuck into people's homes and we we listened to their private conversations and denied them opportunities on that basis. But this is this is the natural consequence of what happens when you say and do things in public. And if you say and do monstrous things in public then there are consequences like you might not get a job offer, you might lose a job, or you might lose some friends or associates who don't you know, want to be around people who, who promote hateful things. I mean, look, this is why the KKK wears robes with hoods, is to hide themselves. And it's very similar to pro-Hamas demonstrators wearing kafias. They're, mm-hmm. they're hiding themselves to conceal their hateful uh, talk so that they won't be exposed to the consequences of their of their speech and action. But there are consequences, and they are going to face them. Okay, Jay, I, I appreciate you being on. You're doing good stuff there, and uh, people should check you out at heritage.org uh, to read your stuff, uh, especially someone who has uh, kids uh, coming close to being ready to go to college. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Okay, that's J.P. Green. We will be right back.
Well, we spent a lot of time here talking about the media and pointing out the ridiculous liberal bias that's been out there for a long time. And that probably won't change anytime soon. But we may have reached a, uh, a jump-the-shark moment with the coverage of the non-bombing of a hospital in Gaza. John Daniel Davidson is senior editor at The Federalist, and he joins us now. John, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. So I think, it's, I think the way it works, it's only really possible to jump the shark once. So for this to qualify for that, it would have to be the worst example ever. Have we have we arrived there? Is this the jump the shark moment? Yeah, this is one of the worst examples uh, that I I've ever seen. Uh, I can't think of uh, of a more egregious example of media bias, really confirmation bias and narrative trumping facts. This was a case in which every major media outlet in the world simply repeated the claims of a terrorist organization that then went on to trigger protests and riots outside Western and Israeli embassies and military installations all across the Muslim world. Uh, the, the complicity of, of outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post and ABC and CBS is, is direct. They are directly implicated in, in the attacks on U.S. embassies that resulted from their misreporting. And the New York Times doesn't have a really great track record when it comes to attacks uh, on the Jewish people and uh, and, and uh, mass massacring Jewish people. And that record seems to be intact, as you said. Yeah, the Times has a long and storied history of making apologies for terrorism uh, in, and, you know, going back to, uh, you know, uh, earlier in the last century with Walter Durante in the Soviet Union. Um, you know, basically running Soviet propaganda in the pages of the New York Times. So, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be surprised at this, but we do need to call it out. And, and part of it is just what I said earlier. They just took what, you know, Hamas runs Gaza. And so the Gaza Health Authority is a branch of the Hamas government. And so the only thing that these news outlets were going on was the say-so of the Gaza Health Ministry, that is a terrorist organization that had just beheaded and tortured and slaughtered uh, some 1,300 civilians in Israel. And these news organizations took that organization that had just done that, you know, less than a week before, at their word, and ran with those headlines. Even the Wall Street Journal did it, which is just insane. Um, yeah, at the top of your piece at The Federalist, uh, I've, I see the, uh, the three headlines from the New York Times. I've seen these before. Uh, I think uh, they, they popped up on social media and places like that. This is the, the, the three headlines from the New York Times. I guess they all ran within hours of each other. Israeli strike kills hundreds in hospital, Palestinians say. And then the same story uh, ran later with this headline. At least 500 dead in strike on Gaza hospital, Palestinians say. And then it changed to, and the, and the same picture is up there for all three headlines with a, a woman and her baby. At least 500 dead in blast at Gaza Hospital, Palestinians say. So uh, they they reacted to their what they seemed to have realized was a mistake. But there there there's no um, there's no debunking of their their story or no no admission of the mistake anywhere, is there? No, it's just sort of uh, changing, uh, modifying the narrative in real time. 
And look, even the last version that you mentioned there of their headline turns out to be a complete lie. Mm-hmm. Estimates of casualties in that explosion are, are between 10 and 50. Yeah. Uh, so you know, not 500, not even in the hundreds. Uh, no evidence of a missile strike, which, you know, the news business used to be about gathering facts and sort of conveying them to the public. Mm-hmm. That is not what journalism is anymore. It is about crafting narratives. And the narrative in this case was um, we need to shift away from the idea that Hamas are the aggressors and that they are the bad guys. And we need to narrative shift uh, to make Israel the bad guys. And that's that's all this was about. Mm-hmm. That was the motivation. And they succeeded. So it doesn't matter what, you know, nobody sees the correction, right? Right. right. Uh, those crowds. And, and it doesn't matter at this point for the purposes of these Hamas sympathizers in the mainstream press. It doesn't matter who was responsible for that explosion or how many people died. Their goal was to inflame the Muslim world and the global left against Israel. And that's what they did. Uh, and the Internet is still relatively new, so uh, a news outlet's ability to uh, instantaneously cause havoc around the world like that is, is pretty new, but it sure was put on display in this case. And, that, and it is still a relatively new thing. The New York Times, 50 years ago, could write a story uh, that, about something that happened today, and it didn't show up in the paper until tomorrow morning. Now it's out there instantly. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And so it's 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 much more powerful in a sense yeah. because you can instantly shape shape a narrative. And look, you know, there's a billion plus people across the Muslim world now that will never be convinced of anything other than uh, an Israeli airstrike on that hospital that killed 500 people. It doesn't matter what the New York Times or anyone else says now. That's that's the narrative, and that's how uh, propagandists. Uh, you know, on the left, and let's be honest, the, the media is controlled by the left. That's how they use. That's how they use the media, and it's very effective. I uh, I like to refer to it as um, wishful thinking journalism. That you have so many people working in these outlets that are hoping, when they hear about a tragedy like this, that it's it ha- oh, they're rooting for it to be an Israeli uh, missile or rocket that went in there, so that their narrative can be bolstered. That's right. And, and you see the same thing. This is the same version uh, of that plays out domestically. And we saw that, and we have seen that throughout the uh, 2020 George Floyd riots. Mm-hmm. Um, war that, in, that, that when a missile, you know, this was last year, when a missile landed in Poland at a grain silo and killed two people, Every media outlet in the world blamed it on Russia. Well, it, it took a while, but uh, the Polish uh, officials finally concluded that it was a Ukrainian missile. Well, it didn't matter because because it, because it was serving a narrative. It wasn't serving uh, the truth. It wasn't trying to get real facts about what actually happened out there. Uh, that's not what they were trying to do. And that's not what we're doing. We saw just yesterday some CNN reporter uh, was was reporting outside one of these U.S. embassies in Lebanon uh, or or somewhere else I can't remember exactly that was sort of under siege and there was fu- they set fires and they were shooting fireworks at the at the building uh, and 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 she said that it was a mostly peaceful protest well <laughs> just just like CNN yeah. uh, had their infamous most fiery but peaceful protest during the George Floyd riots uh, that 
this is what you see over and over again, and it's always is to serve the domestic agenda of the left in the United States. It always skews that direction. That's yeah, its purpose. Yeah, it doesn't go to the right. But um, So do you think that with so many major outlets becoming uh, uh, more interested in activism than actual journalism, that, that uh, and with the immediate reach that they have, they've obviously become more dangerous because they, they know the power they have now? Yeah, on the one hand, they've become more dangerous uh, because the, the mask is off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, so, and and we see in this case with, with hospital, just how dangerous it can be in the real world. On the other hand, uh, more people, especially in the United States, are ignoring the, the corporate press because they know exactly what it is, that, mm-hmm. that they're just engaged in political propaganda. And so their audiences uh, are shrinking. Their audiences are more skeptical. Uh, and and they, they have a lot less credibility than they did even 15 years ago, 20 years ago. You know, uh, w- when I was a, a journalism student coming up through school, uh, you know, I, I – read the New York Times and the Washington Post with some degree of confidence in what they reported. Uh, that not anymore, you know, and I think that there's a lot of people that feel that way. Yeah, I remember back a million years ago to my first journalism class, and I think it was a woman who was teaching it, and I think one of the first things she wrote up on the board was, just the facts, ma'am. Uh, and that was kind of yeah. a line about well, the way journalism was supposed to be done. If you're a reporter, just give me the facts. And that that yep. was a million years ago, and that's, that doesn't exist anymore. You would think that the New York Times would apply the same standard to a terrorist organization uh, that they apply to Trump. Remember during the right. Trump administration, every other headline from the mainstream corporate media what about when Trump would say something, they would append the phrase without evidence. Mm-hmm. So if they could at least – just apply that standard to terrorist organizations that slaughter civilians when they claim that something happened. Just say that Hamas says this without evidence. Uh, yeah. that, that would be a step in the right direction, but they won't do that. No, that's a, that's a great point, because if Donald Trump says anything about the 2020 election, or if there's any story about anything uh, dealing with possible fraudulent uh, activities in the election— it's always uh, the, the that those two words are always there without evidence that it's yep. or, or previously debunked or something like that. They never just print the story. Um, so, right. yeah. And, and, uh, and as you said, these these uh, media outlets, uh, they don't they don't correct their mistakes. Uh, the Washington Post, um, they they came out with a story that, you know, the original story. And then they, instead of apologizing at uh, nine o'clock last night, um, the Washington Post had a picture of the parking lot with the cars surrounding a, a hole in the parking lot. And the caption for the picture is the strike on a Gaza City hospital was the single deadliest incident of civilians in Gaza since the war began after Hamas's, Hamas's October 7th attack. Israel has carried out retaliatory airstrikes in Gaza that local authorities say have killed at least 3,400 people. So this is 9 o'clock last night, and they were still referring to it, number one, as a strike. And they were saying that, uh, and and they didn't necessarily come out and say that Israel was responsible for that strike. But the next sentence says that Israel has carried out retaliatory strikes. So it, it, it creates the implication 
that this was one of their retaliatory strikes. And this is hours after it's been debunked or at least questioned. Yeah, and this is exactly. No, I mean, it, it, and, and, and a lot of outlets are, are sticking to this, uh, this sort of manipulative way of representing the facts, even though U.S. authorities uh, have all, have come out and said that they agree with Israel that this was not that, that this was a misfired uh, Palestinian terror group's rocket that malfunctioned and landed in this parking lot uh, and 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 created a big uh, blast that killed some people. Uh, so you know this is this is what we should expect going forward. The news media will do and say anything and twist the facts uh, to shape the narrative that Israel is the aggressor, uh, that Hamas and the Palestinians are the victims, and it doesn't matter what happened. And there was an imperative for them to do this. They, they could not, uh, you know, th- this happened only days after the Palestinians carried out this horrifying attack. Yeah, they could not. Go ahead. They could not sit by and let Israel remain in the in the position of the victim and Hamas in the position of the uh, you know aggressor. They had to flip the narrative, and this was they decided this was how they were going to do it. Yeah, and uh, I think they're not going to let the facts uh, facts stand in the way. Um, so I I just you you made some uh, in, in your piece, and we're talking to John Daniel Davidson of the Federalist. You made reference in your piece to. The similarities with the um, George Floyd uh, yeah. activity, if I guess that's the best word I can come up with. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we saw that throughout throughout the summer of 2020. Yeah, when when we would have you know uh, uh, riots and violence break out in cities across the country, and, uh, and and the media would would frame them as peaceful protests. Uh, and and frame them as um, as legitimate, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like uh, you know seeking a racial reckoning, and uh, uh, and and really paper over the the, the violence uh, and and e- even some of the injuries and and deaths and property damage uh, that w- resulted, you know, staggering number of of. of uh, in terms of the the cost of the property damage, whole city blocks burned down, whole police stations besieged and overrun, um, and 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 the media just would not cover it uh, in, in a in a realistic way. They, uh, if you just took the media's version of it, uh, you would think that these were just peaceful civil rights protests uh, where everyone was holding hands and singing songs. Uh, instead, they were they were the worst riots we'd seen in a generation. Yeah, and it's one thing if just the average regular person on the street is being affected by the media and uh, being misled. But if, uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. It just slipped my mind. But the, the guy who um, tried to get into the get into his car and then was shot by the cops and became paralyzed. Uh, he was in Wisconsin. I forget his name. Um, but uh, Kamala Harris went to the hospital, and after she came out of the hospital, she said that she told this guy that she was proud of him. So she could only have been, be, she could only have been feeling that way because of media coverage, because it was nothing, he did nothing to be proud of. Yeah, that's right. I mean, cases where, where police were, you know, where you, police used justified force against 
against people who were, who were in turn, uh, you, you know, engaged in criminal activity and themselves using force, were instantly demonized. You know, the, you know, you mentioned Kamala Harris. She's the one that started up started up a fund to bail oh, rioters yeah. out yep. of out of jail. Uh, you know, and, and so and, and the consequences of this, when, when the media inflames these incidences between police, it triggered real riots, you know, in Wisconsin, it, it, all in Seattle and Portland, all across the country, actual violence, real damage, you know, including death. Uh, you know, people were killed as a result of this. There, there was the man in, in, uh, in Minneapolis who was who was burned to death in an arson uh, of a convenience store in those riots, it has real consequences, you know, and, and, and yet the media uh, is both responsible for, for those things because of the way they inflame these issues and the way they frame them, um, and, and also then won't report on the damage that they, have con- that they have sort of indirectly caused. And won't fix the problem when they make a mistake. I, I, I'm, I'm out of time. Uh, John, always good to have you on. Great stuff there at thefederalist.com. John Daniel Davison, thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, we'll be back.